This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Scott Cottrell. Scott is a 29-year veteran of the U.S. Army. He retired in 2000 and then was recalled in 2008 before he ended up getting out of the service for good. He served from 1973 to 2000, then again in 2008. Um, He retired as a full bird colonel and just couldn't have been a more gracious, gentlemanly guest. He has written his debut novel, When Chaos Reigns. It's a political thriller. It is... A monumental work of art. I mean, he's juggling subjects like China, Russia, drug cartels, Islamic terror, um, and then, of course, constitutional crises. He does it all. I mean, all that's interesting. Let's stipulate that. Those are all huge battle axes to juggle. I mean, big, juicy themes and threads that you have to follow. And it is a triumph of architecture that Scott puts it all together in a way that is understandable, action-packed, and moves the plot forward. That's phenomenal. I, his, his insight on the Kwajalein Atoll in the South China Sea is fascinating. It's a place that Scott was actually commanded for two years. And his insider's knowledge, and more than insider knowledge, his deep love of that area is evident. He... Again, to my northeastern mind, he makes a gamble because he is unabashed in his Christianity, and you know the plot doesn't revolve necessarily around Christianity, but it's absolutely a component of the thriller. And I personally find that refreshing. It's you know we live in an age. I think Sid Vicious said last week that he never thought he'd live to see a day where the right was the counterculture and the left was the establishment prudes. <laughs> so. When someone comes up and is kind of unabashed about and and nonplussed, even about just sort of oh yeah, and they're Christian, so they were praying about this, 
and uh you know and just kind of you know not making a big point about it but just oh yeah that's a big character trait of theirs um i find that refreshing because it's just something you don't hear very often these days and uh and scott does um a great job i think juggling all these components together it is a dangerous medium because political thrillers like historical fiction and especially his Scott, I mean, Scott's writing something that is very topically based, um, you know, has a lot of current events in it. Putin's in Ukraine, you know, there's mentions of Trump. There's, uh, you know, there, so there's things that are very, very current. And I feel like in any book, any commercial piece of commercial fiction, that's going to be that topical. You're always torn between your characters becoming two dimensional cardboard devices that are simply there to further the plot. Um, versus uh you know having living breathing 3d uh characterizations um you also risk weighing down the plot with too much historical context too much backstory too much editorialization um which really can sludge up the plot and it no longer becomes a pulse quickening exercise instead it becomes this very uh, cumbersome unwieldy beast for a debut novel, Scott does a great job. I, that is a, that's a tough tightrope to walk, and I think he walks it very well. And I'm excited to see the sequel that hopefully will be coming out soonish. I'm putting that on Scott. It, it, he, he did not indicate it was coming out soonish. But I, I would love to see him continue to churn these out because I think you, you can't take issues the size and scope of which that he's dealing with and simply, you know, cover it in one book and be done with it. I, there's so much still to dev out with that. Um, but I really enjoyed having him on. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to see the variety of art coming from the veteran community. And, uh, the veteran community has, you know, it has people like Scott, man. It has people that have seen, I mean, 29 years in the Army, seeing it from 1973 to 2000, that, you know, almost a drought from prolonged war, and then being recalled back. I mean, just the span of knowledge that he has uh, from that era, um, and that perspective is really, really interesting. And I think well worth, uh, I'm just thrilled he wasn't just a drunk guy at the end of the bar telling no shit there I was stories um, and instead has churned all that experience, all those memories, all of his takeaways into a compelling piece of fiction. That is, to me, that is an incredibly noble and worthwhile goal. Um, by the way, I should mention the book is available on Kindle on August 8th and it is available for pre-order right now while you're listening to this, unless you're listening to it after August 8th, in which case you can just go buy it on Kindle. Do that. It's well worth it. Um, okay, without any further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Scott Cottrell's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you, Chris. So, first off, 
congratulations. I, I feel like that's always in order with any author, but especially one that's writing any sort of speculative or historical fiction. That just seems like you are, it's always such a heavy lift to be building a world, but also drawing on so much historical fact. And I feel like that's a real clash of left and right brains. So congratulations on putting it all together and getting something birthed. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It was, uh, I would call it a labor of love, uh, a lot of work. How many years did you put into writing that book? Altogether eight. I started this in 2015. Were you out of the military by then? Yes, I was. I was uh, retired from the military then. Okay. Um, obviously, so I'm, I'm going to cage this whole interview by trying not to give away too many spoilers about the book okay. and, and leave as much for the, just sell the sizzle, but not the steak uh, for the book. But I don't think it's giving anything away to say that the book largely revolves around Quadulene. Quad, I'm saying that right, right? Quadulene? Yeah, yeah, it's Quadulene. Yeah. It's Quadulene. Uh, okay, Quadulene. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, did the germs for this book start when you were there, when you were stationed there? Yes, it did. And it, it carried on through the remainder of my military career. And uh, once I retired, I felt I uh, wanted to put this book together. You know, I I want to dive into so many aspects of the book because there's so much meat on that bone that we need to chew through. Uh, but I feel like we should really start with you. Uh, where are you from originally? Are you from the South? Are you from Alabama? Uh, I'm from East Tennessee. East Tennessee, uh, Knox, okay. Knox County, near near the mountains. I didn't know how much you and Seth Grayson overlapped, so I was I was trying to <laughs> figure out where where the connection was. Got you. Uh, was the military always a career goal for you growing up? You know, uh, I enjoyed the military. Played with my little army soldiers as a kid, and uh, after junior year in high school, I was invited to go to the American Legion's Boy State in Tennessee, and it was there the uh, they put the bug in my ear. And uh, after that, I applied and was accepted to West Point. What appealed to you about the military? What was it that turned you on and made you think this was a viable path? It uh, service, service the country. Um, the United States military at West Point is a great school, great reputation. Uh, I knew I would get a good uh, education there. I would graduate with a job, and after that, I wasn't sure. So you didn't think it was a career, necessarily? I just really wasn't sure, but I was open to it. Okay. Did you come from a military family? Well, my dad had served in World War II briefly. Uh, he was uh, a nuclear engineer, and he's, he uh, served uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, huh. uh, starting, in, starting in 43 when he was still a contractor, but then he was drafted in late in early 45 and sent back to Oak Ridge. And as you know, at Oak Ridge, they worked on a piece of the Manhattan project. Did that, did that impact your childhood in a significant way? Was that, was that kind of something looming over the household? Like, Hey, look what dad did. Look at the impact of what he's done and all that. Or was it never really a subject? 
Oh, absolutely. It impacted us. Uh, we went to Oak Ridge several times to Y20, or excuse me, Y12, one of the plants. We've been to see the uh, water-cooled reactor. We've wow. taken tours. Uh, it's a fascinating place. For you, then, growing up, were you um, at all a writer? Was there any interest in the arts, in writing, in expressing yourself in a more creative way than what school would otherwise require? You know, I think I was sort of a, uh, interested in that. In my, early in my career in 1980, I actually wrote an article for Soldiers Magazine huh. called Boots, Carrots, and Me, a little farm animal analogy. Uh, when I went to the School of Advanced Military Studies, I had to write two monographs. One was on the heavy engineer, uh, the heavy division engineer support. And the other one was on uh, from the Cobra, Operation Cobra to the Seine River, 1944 in France. And those were enjoyable to study for, to write and prepare. And uh, that those things really put the bug in my ear to at some point write a book like this. What did you find was most enjoyable about the writing process as you were maturing as a writer, as you were doing more writing and going through advanced schools? Was it the research? Was it the actual putting pen to paper and capturing something? What, what was the payoff for you? What did you enjoy most? Well, I think it was two. Uh, it was mm -hmm. research, especially for the two monographs, uh, because those were just factual information, factual subjects. But because of that research, then when I started thinking about uh, this book, uh, the research have seemed to have more purpose. But another enjoyable piece of this book, this novel, this fictional book, <laughs> was creating the story that pulled together the historical facts, the current situation, and current day facts. Creating that story and making uh, all the pieces come together was enjoyable. Okay, I can't hold off getting into the book then. Uh, let's let's dive into this. You were writing it for eight years, but yet your book is very current. You mentioned Putin, you, the war in Ukraine is a thing. You even mentioned Trump. So things that happened in the last eight years are registered in the book. How much revising did you have to do as world events kept transpiring and, and take you away from the original premise? I had to do some advising. There was actually an earlier version that did not do well. And then I got, got with a different publisher and we updated it, re-edited it, uh, added some current day information that was not in the first version. And we're now about to release the updated version. So you were overtaken by events when you first wrote? When I first wrote it, uh, it was still current. Um, a lot of what I had in there was just waiting to happen. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, didn't, it did not do well at all. So it, it uh, gathered dust for a while. And then I contacted the new publisher, who, uh, and he looked at it, and he thought it was a good, good candidate for updating and republishing. That's so I did not know that. That's really interesting. Oh, um, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Please. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not, not required for me to know ahead of time. I think it's fascinating. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of lessons in that. Looking back at that first version of it, 
What was the problem, do you think? I think I was new at being an author, and I had uh, a very naive idea of what happens when you try to market a book, or in my case, not market a book. It, uh, it's very much a lot. You have to have a good product, but you have to market, market well. Uh, gotcha. And I was simply not good at that. You also chose a genre of writing, I feel like, that does that is very marketing heavy. Um, you know, I guess if you've done a poetry book, I mean, everything needs to be marketed. But for some reason, the, the, the standards, the expectations are different. But you're really, I mean, you're, you're going down a, a path forged by, you know, Tom Clancy and Jack Carr and all the rest of them. I mean, that's something that is incredibly labor intensive on the marketing end. Is that really where most of the growth has been or has it been in your writing as well? I think my new publisher, uh, and he's also involved in this, has really helped me to see what needs to be done. Uh, I think uh, updating it helped, but the, there weren't a lot of updates in terms of added information, but there were some, some okay. recent stuff. Uh, but you know what? Part of the reason I wrote this book also was uh, I actually love the Constitution as it was originally written and uh, as it was uh, supposed to be executed. And I felt it important. And, and I raised some constitutional issues in the book uh, that impact the military, but also impact the country as a whole. And uh, to get people to think about it while they're reading what I hope is an enjoyable fictional novel uh, with the. Uh, a lot of backup. I feel like there's, um, let's shift back to you only because I really want to set the table for the book. Um, I feel like you bring a huge amount of experience to the writing game. And when, so, you know, it's one thing for somebody to say, I feel like there's constitutional issues that should be considered. I want to get into some of the spirituality and some of the religion um, that you talk about in the book, which um, I found, quite frankly, refreshing, that you were almost, almost want to say casually, comfortably able to weave the theme of Christianity and its back backstopping your lead characters um, into the book without a way that seemed preachy or, or you know. Uh, proselytizing but it was just this is who they are and it was just a comfortable facet of life that you brought into the characters mix i think there's a difference between doing that just in a vacuum and when someone like you with the benefit of a lot of experience and hindsight looks back and decides to write about that i feel like there's there's reasons you're writing this and you know where you speak so let's talk a little bit about that okay <clears throat> when were you in? What years did you serve in the military? I served, uh, I graduated from the, the academy in June of 73. Okay. And I served continuously until August of 2000. Wow. So with a little over 27 years, I retired the first time from the military. I was out for eight years, during which time I worked for county government in Florida and became a county engineer. I, I'm an engine, my branch is engineer. I became a county engineer. Then I went to Dallas and worked for almost two years for a, a big construction engineering firm. And then I was recalled to active duty. 
Um, it was a, it was sort of a recall that I could have turned down, but it was a recall that my wife and I talked and prayed about and decided we should do this. Now, the surprising part is the recall was not to go overseas in 2008, which was a busy time. Huh. It was to go to, uh, to Fort Knox, Kentucky to lead the BRAC effort, base realignment and closure at Fort Knox, Kentucky for Army of Sessions Command. So we did that, went back to back on active duty to Fort Knox for a little over two years more, and then retired again from the military in August of 2010. Oh, Okay, going into the military, let's start at West Point. How big a role did religion play for you? Have you been raised in a religious house? Was was it second nature to you, or was it an afterthought when you first went in? No, uh, my parents were Christian. We were related, uh, raised in a Christian home. I accepted Christ at the age of 12. Of course, when you're 12, there's so much you know and so much you don't know, so in my high school years and early college years at the academy, you, you sort of go up and down in terms of your faith. But uh, I reconnected with my faith uh, late at the academy. Of course, when I was there for the first three years, uh, Sunday morning chapel was mandatory. Mm. Interesting. We, we got up, uh-huh. we formed up, and we marched to church. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, I went to the Protestant chapel at the academy, which is a huge Gothic stone structure. Uh, but I enjoyed the services and, and my senior year, first year, I, my faith was strengthened. I go to the communion services, even though I didn't have to go by senior year, they had done away with mandatory chapel, but I would go anyway. I, I got married about a year after I graduated. My wife and I were both, uh, strong Christians. I'm certainly, I make my share of mistakes probably more than anyone but uh, we've been in uh, in our career. We went to the post chapel. We've been uh, Pentecostal. We've been non denominational. We've been Southern Baptist. You name it. We've been to the churches, <laughs> and we discovered that it's not the church you attend, but your faith in Christ that matters. That relationship is what matters. So that's what we've learned, and uh, hope hope that made sense. It do, It makes it makes a lot of sense, and it also. I should mention overlaps with Seth Grayson. Does yeah. it not? Yeah. Um, I imagine there were crucible moments that really tied you to your faith more. There were, Is there anything like that? Can you remember, or do you feel comfortable talking about any of the moments that really did kind of firm it up in your mind and make it your own and not just what you inherited from your family? Right. Absolutely. Um, 1980, I had finished my company command down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. And my battalion commander said, uh, Cottrell, they're going to send you on a one-year unaccompanied tour pretty soon anyway, so why don't you volunteer for one? Go to Israel. I said, okay. So my wife and I talked about it. I, I volunteered for a one-year unaccompanied tour in Israel with a Corps of Engineers and spent a year in the Negev Desert near the Gulf of Elat. Uh, the day I landed in Tel Aviv, while I had a good faith, I had never sat down and personally read scriptures from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation. So the day I landed, I started doing that. And it's it's unbelievable what it can do for your faith when you read something like uh, the tomb of Bethesda 
where Jesus was and where people were waiting for the angel to stir the water. And you go there and you stand there and you're at the pool of Bethesda, which is three or 4,000 years old. Or you go to um, Caesarea where he preached the uh, Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and you stand there and you overlook the Sea of Galilee. So that was a defining moment for me the entire year in Israel, uh, reading and standing on what I was reading about and, and really learning the scriptures much better than I had in the past. What year was that that you were there? I was there from the summer of 80 to the summer of 81 in the Negev Desert. What what was it like geopolitically then? I mean, Israel. I mean, obviously, you're missing some of the some of the outright wars. But what was were we between antifadas there? What was going on in Israel militarily? Yeah, in the, the PLO in southern Lebanon was extremely active. Uh, there were times roads or areas were closed down. Everywhere you went, uh, there were Israeli. Uh, checkpoints at roads and intersections everywhere. Uh, it's it's rather interesting to be driving through Jericho and get stopped by an Israeli checkpoint, and the guy who was riding with me tried to take his picture, and uh, he did not like that. <laughs> Brought his M16 into the car and said, "Do not take my picture." I said, "Okay, we will not take your picture." But it was. Uh, I enjoyed it. I have a great respect for the nation of Israel. Uh, they're always living in interesting times. Yeah, talk about <laughs> talk about the geopolitical re- revelations you had being there. I would imagine spending a year there, you really get to know and get a feel for what it's like to be a nation on perpetual war footing, and with the wolf kind of always at the door. I imagine that would be a big takeaway. But was there other stuff, or was that is that true, or is that off base? It uh, No, that's not off base. We were there when the Israeli Air Force bombed Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor. In fact, we had that Saturday off, and we were down on the beach on the Gulf of a lot, and we saw a flight of F-15s and 16s flying overhead, uh, splitting the border between Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Later that day, we saw some coming back, and we heard... They had just bombed the Saddam Hussein's reactor. And, of course, that raised everybody's temperature level in Israel. The Israeli government, the Israeli citizens, all of our uh, staff on the air bases that we were building for the Israelis. And it was was an interesting time. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Um, When you came back from Israel, did you notice changes about yourself? Was there anything different in how you thought about things? how you felt things, especially you'd had almost this meditative time praying and reading the Bible, and you'd been in such a crazy kinetic environment. Was there any difference that you could tell when you came back? Well, I think, yeah, number one, I would not trade that experience for anything. And number two, I I had the opportunity to bring my wife over for about 10 days. So for Mm -hmm. a while, and she got and I got to show her parts of the Holy Land in Jerusalem. And I think both of our faiths grew during that time. And since returning, while everyone still has ups and downs, I feel I became a stronger Christian um, and continued on with our career and going to various places. So when you, uh, I, I have to ask, when you get out in 2000, 
and then 9-11 happens. Yeah. What was going through your mind? What were the emotions? What were the feelings? And what were your thoughts? Well, of course, uh, 9-11 brought the country together. I actually called the engineer branch shortly after it happened, actually twice, and suggested that I was available. And they thanked me very much. And they said they know how to get in touch with me. But they were they were going with what they had. And, wow. and uh, I, I understood that. Uh, I did later on go ahead and submit paperwork to let the Army know that if they ever needed anyone, I, I could be available. And it was that paperwork in 2008 that led the Army Assessions Command to sending me an email and said, hey, we have a job for you. <laughs> we'll take you up <laughs> on it. Yeah. yeah. For you, and obviously you were working, I mean, you were you were busy and you were, you know, having these civilian careers that were going on. Was there any, just because of the years that you'd served, was there any sense of, come on, man, I did all these years in now you guys decide to do a, a war. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, obviously there was the Gulf and, and all that, but it's like now, like, or like, was there a sense that you were missing out? Was there a sense of like, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm putting the paperwork in, but was there a little sense of fear missing out or anything like that? for you during the early aughts? Uh, that's a fair question. I don't know if it's a fear of missing out. It was just a sense that others had been doing their fair share and I needed to make sure I did. And that's why I put the paperwork in. Uh, and again, we got recalled because of the paperwork, but but not to go overseas right. to do bracket right. Fort Knox. But <laughs> okay, it is what it is. What What specifically then triggered the writing of the book when did what, what was the, what was the moment at which you were like I, had you been thinking about writing prior to this or was this the first time writing commercially had crossed your mind no i had been thinking about it for quite a while and i watch our government and and i like our government and and it's a two-party system and uh of course you go back and forth but then i saw the country becoming more and more divided more so than i've ever seen between left and right conservative progressive the moderate in the middle, that's becoming less and less. Um, and I saw things that uh, I thought I would like to share my opinions about with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm probably thinking too highly of myself, but I thought it might be good <laughs> to do something like this. Uh -huh. And in the context of a novel uh, that people might enjoy reading, maybe I could throw out a few thoughts that people might think about. So it was a better way of editorializing than to just write a memoir or write a bunch of op-eds. It was, Hey, let's do something entertaining. Is that the thought? I, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I'm not a known writer who knows me. Um, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it works out. <laughs> no, I, I think it will. It's a, it's an incredibly interesting book. I, uh, I, I guess I should ask about Kwajalein. Did you know right off the bat that was going to be as central as it was in the book? Did you start with that premise? Yes, absolutely. I probably can guess the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Why? Well, I was there for two years. My mm -hmm. wife, my daughter was in college. She would come for summer and Christmas. I knew it inside and out. I'm sure there's been changes since then, but I have a good feeling for Kwajalein. Quadrant's Hole, the Marshall Islands, what goes on there. And I thought this could be the basis of 
and I can grow it from there, other things. So it um, essentially, I would be talking about things that I really knew well. Yeah. And so I had some credibility when I start there. The level of granular detail, and I think for lack of a better word, love that you have for that area jumps off the page. Uh, you, it, it's not just that you know it, but there's a real affection for the people, the place, the location, the climate, the natural beauty of it. Yeah. Um, how much did you feel? I don't think there's a better way. I, I'm trying to think of a, a more graceful way of putting this, and I can't think of one. How how much did you feel like you were going to have to manufacture a story around it, or how much did you feel that the story just leapt out to you that, hey, if I'm going to tell a story about Kwajalein, I know exactly what this story needs to be about? I, While using Kwajalein as a centerpiece, I knew some of the pieces I wanted to add to it early on. I was aware of what China was doing in the South China Sea and is still doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm was aware, you know, in 2014, Russia had already taken the Ukraine. In my mind, it was only a matter of time before they went further. Mm -hmm. uh, our border, our southern border is open, and that causes problems. And so I knew those were pieces of the pie that I wanted to weave into the story. The actual weaving of the story was the really fun part and the difficult part, making it come together. Absolutely. And that is that was some significant thick threads of stories that had to get tied together. And I think you did it very well. Um, I want to talk about some of those geopolitical issues because um, certainly talking about the nation state sponsor of not just terrorism, but international organized crime, drug cartels, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like so many of those were known and were being written about as early as 10, 15 years ago, yet they still remain a problem and they still haven't gotten the attention that they should. And it, sadly, all those themes have stayed really timely, which I guess is good for your book. Um, yeah. But, but it's, but it's definitely, it's, it, can you talk a little bit about why those became, how these, those caught your attention and why you felt those were so important to write about because I feel like a lot of people don't bite all that off. They don't. Tr they don't try to tackle those issues, and you did, and you tackled them all at once, which was somewhat monumental. So, um, how did how did all that uh, kind of get under your skin enough to the point you were able to write about it? Well, it started in 1990 when you're probably aware I was assigned to Panama for a year, another un unaccompanied tour for a year. Uh, I got to Panama while Just Cause was still going on, but winding down. Uh, I actually spent, for that year in Panama, I spent a large time, time, part of my time in other countries in Central and South America. I've been to Peru a couple times, been to Bolivia many times, been to Colombia. And uh, part of what we were doing was trying to help those nations turn away from their very lucrative copra, coca plants. And been in meetings with the DEA and seen interesting things. So early on, I was aware of the drug issue 
from where it starts and the fact that it ends up too often in the families here at home. Uh, as the border gets worse and worse, I read more about what comes across. And then now China's sending fentanyl to Mexico, which is just compounding the situation. So I felt that was, could be and should be an important piece of the cabal that I put together for the storyline. Was it difficult for you to know where to draw the left and right limits of Seth Grayson? Uh, or were you like, he's really going to be an avatar for me and where whatever I think and whatever I feel, I think he needs to reflect? Well, he's he's not me. Uh, I see why that comparison can be drawn, but he's not me. I intentionally tried, made him a different brand, came from a different area. But did I use what I had learned at Quadland? Yeah. to uh, motivate what he does and and um, steer him left and right. Yes, I, I use my ex- experience at Quadlin to um, put into Grace, but he's not he's not me. I'm not not trying to write an autobiography. Sure. If anything, Grace, Grayson's a whole lot better than I turned out. <laughs> uh, he's uh, but but since I knew Quadlin, I, I thought that would be a good place to put him, and of course he's a central figure in the story. Did you, um, was there any, uh, soul searching, any, uh, second guessing, any doubts about interjecting his Christianity into the storyline? Oh, none whatsoever. Uh, I think it's important that folks know that, uh, in the military space, I was in the army 29 years. There are many, many Christians and other faiths, but many Christians who take their faith very strongly. Uh, and as things become worse and worse, you tend to lean more and more on what you know works. Uh, so I thought it good to share his faith. Uh, it just that it is that's part of his makeup, and you can see many times he prayed, and and uh, so it wasn't. I had no hesitation. I I guess let me. <laughs> are you surprised that I asked that, or that it pops out to me? I mean, are you aware of? how rare that is in just popular commercial fiction for one to just casually throw that out there. I understand it is rare. I I do read some authors that do the same sort of thing, but it's rare. And and all too often the language uh, is that goes with non-faith is all too frequent. Uh, And so I first purposely stayed away from that. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, about the civ mill divide i mean obviously you've been in the civilian world for significant period of time working jobs and all that so it's not a foreign country to you by any stretch of the imagination but um do you feel that understanding what a big role faith often plays in the military is part of what makes military service so foreign to so many americans because it's not something that translates into pop culture very often you know uh when i went back in in 2008 after retiring first in 2000 i had already noticed some differences in the military um which was fine and i adapted to that uh now i believe it's getting even more different um I can't speak to why people are not wanting to join the military as much as they used to in the past. I know 
Most of the services are not making their recruitment goals. I read articles about why, and I see different things. Uh, the fact that uh, people's faith tends, if they're strong believers, that tends to guide what they do and where they go. That could play into the difficulty the military's happened, but I, I don't know that for fact. I'm going to forget to ask if I don't ask it now. How involved are you as a West Point alum? Do you come back to West Point football games <laughs> and things like that? Um, probably not as much as I've had, but we just had our my 50th reunion. Wow. Uh, and it was back on West in West Point. I did not go. I seriously considered it, uh, but, but chose not to attend. I do attend zoom meetings like this with my, some of my company mates. I was in company C4 and we do zoom meetings and I stay in touch with some of them. Uh, one of my classmates and, and former roommate, he's down in New Mexico. He's written some books. I stay in touch with him. So in earlier years, I used to go to the Founders Day uh, parties that are held each March, celebrating the, the the day that West Point was founded. But I haven't done that in quite a while, so it's probably not as much as I should. I am a <laughs> member of <laughs> I am a member of the West Point Association of Graduates. Got you. Um, I, I ask. I, I knew so little about West Point um, until now. I'm surrounded by West Point graduates everywhere, everywhere, a stone's throw from West Point. And I got, uh, as everyone on the show knows, Charlie Faint is on our board who taught at West Point for a long time. And his wife is my yeah. managing director. And now we're surrounded. I'm inundated with all these West Point people. So I hear West Point <laughs> stuff all the time. And it's funny. They're, um, they're good guys. <laughs> no, they they are. I mean, it's it's great. And, and I... Um, and it's such an amazing institution in so many ways. It is funny, though, the civilians in this area, sometimes the, their only contact with the military is West Point. And so West Point is to them the army. And it's like, huh, well, sort of. I mean, it's it, it's not brag or whatever it is now, liberty. Um, but, you know, it's not it's not. You know, it's not one of the. You know, it's an officer heavy university. And so it's a little bit different than, but, you know, it's, uh, it's better, I guess, than no exposure at all. And that's nice. And, but I think it does come with, uh, all the accoutrements of a university for better or for worse. Um, oh, yeah. Which is interesting. But you seem to have had, a, I, the reason I ask about West Point with you is, um, you seem to have had a lot of pride in West Point. I mean, that seems to have been a, a big accomplishment to have gone through there and that it stood out in the book that there was some relish with which you described West Point. Uh, it was more than just a casual, yeah, I went there for four years. I mean, you want to talk about the freight elevators that got used and I was in this <laughs> yeah. dorm and I was in that dorm. Like I mean, there, there's some institutional pride there. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that was more than just the character. That was, that was you enjoying kind of walking <laughs> through those hallways again. It was. Um, well, first of all, I thought I want to give context to Seth Grayson. And so I fell back on my time, my four years at West Point. And it is. It, it's a great school. Academically, it's very high. Um, it is not a fun four years. It is a tough, tough four years, especially first year when you're a plebe, especially the first two months, July and August of your first summer 
It's called Beast Barracks. And it's called Beast Barracks for a reason. They are tough on you physically, mentally, emotionally, every which way they can be tough on you. They are tough on you. And many, many people do not make the first two months. The rest of your plebe year, your freshman year, that's the academic year, is equally tough. You march to class. You march to your meals. When you sit down at your table of 10, you sit at attention and you eat at attention. You serve the upperclassmen on your table. Uh, and as the year wears on, you get to eat a little more. But often you, you get up from the meal and you're still hungry. It's tough. It's <laughs> tough. But it's you make friends for a lifetime, a sense of camaraderie. And when you graduate, you number one, you know you have a good degree. They prepared you as best you can for your first assignment in the military. And it's like, okay, let's see what happens. At what point did you realize it was going to become a career? I think I was a company commander at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I told my wife one day after work, I said, you know, I'm good at this. Mm. Because up until then, we had talked about, well, what are we going to do after my five-year commitment was up? And I told her, I said, you know, I think I'm good at this. And, and she agreed. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, the military spouses, they sometimes have it tougher than the husbands or the wives. Because we, we go overseas for a year. We go for a month-long training exercise. We're gone. We get called in at night. And they just have to pick up and run the family. And, and my wife, Peggy, she did. She's fantastic. And she supported me all that time. And uh, it's tough for them, but she did. How did she feel when you put your paperwork back in and kept saying, hey, tap me if you need me to come back after 9-11? Was she supportive <laughs> of that? Was she down for that? Or was she like, yeah. Actually, she was. She was. She was, she yeah. was very supportive. Uh-huh. And when they uh, when they said, we want you to come back on active duty in 2008, she was, she was all for it. So wow. She loved the military wow. life also. It was hard on her, but she loved it too. So. Okay, so let's talk about the, the really dive into the book then. Um, the first time that you had thought about writing, this was this the book, or had there been other books, that, other ideas that you toyed around with prior? No, this was the book. This was the book. Okay. Um, what was driving what you talked about? Hey, rather than me just saying what I think, I'm going to write a story about it. At the end of the day, what do you want people to walk out of? What ideas do you want percolating in their minds? Well, I want him, I want the readers to see that there are constitutional issues between our administration and our military. Not, not just this administration, all the administrations. There are constitutional issues that impact day-to-day Americans. Unfortunately, these days, I don't think it's Civics classes are not taught well enough in high school and college. Uh, there are some Americans could not tell you what the three branches of government are. And that's very sad to me. Uh, so I wanted to raise some constitutional issues to get people thinking and talking about it. Um, you know that uh, the Constitution, for example, requires that the U.S. Senate advise and consent on all treaties. And before it becomes law, they have to pass it by two-thirds vote, 67 out of 100 senators. Um, that's, that's pretty clear in the Constitution. Yet, presidents from both parties 
have ended up doing things called executive agreements where they put together an agreement with another country or several countries and it gets signed and they start heading down that line, even though for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a treaty, but it bypassed the advising consent uh, process, probably because it wouldn't pass the advising consent process. For example, when President Obama was in, he did the uh, agreement with Iran. Um, do I think that would have passed the advising consent process with 67 votes in the Senate? No way. Right. But right. the unfortunately, sometimes our Supreme Court, they allow the executive agreements to stand. So those kinds of issues are like, uh, you know, I scratch my head and I go, how can this be? Well, now I'm a little naive, uh, so I know politics are politics, yet that's not what the Constitution says. Is that the front burner issue in your mind? Is that, is, I mean, clearly you wrote, you knocked yourself out to write a book and spend eight years writing it about this. But now, with the benefit of hindsight and seeing all the events happening, is that is that the nearest five meter target that we need to be thinking about our constitutional issues? Yeah, for me, that is the front burner item. Okay. Uh, faith in the military would be second, but the front burner was the Constitution and how we're following it or not following it or ignoring it. Uh, and again, it's it's both parties do it when it suits their needs. Uh, it's anyway, yeah, that's that's the number one. Geopolitically, um, I mean, you identify so many actors that I think is prescient and and I, I would hope to people obvious, although it's not. So it's good that you wrote about it. <laughs> but what do you see geopolitically right now? What concerns you? What do you think is? Do you think the issues that you raise, whether it's the South China Sea, whether it's that intersection of uh, state-supported uh, terrorism and, and crime organizations, um, uh, natural resources. What do you think? What do you see as the preeminent geopolitical concern that we should be focused on? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the easy answer is all of the above, but the, the more correct answer is we need to get ourselves right at home first. Mm-hmm. We need a strong enough military to hold things at bay while we heal ourselves. Uh, and that's not an easy process. Um, I guess I would leave it at that. I'm going to come back to the, to the Christianity piece again, because when you talk about you're trying to, if not make an argument, at least provoke thought and get people to think about constitutional issues and all that. Um, I'm thinking it in my mind that I'm wondering if I would try to stay laser focused on that and not do anything that would attract or detract focus from that. When you made the calculation or, and it doesn't seem like it was, uh, when I say calculation, I'm not implying some sort of mustache twirling plan to do this, but, <laughs> but just simply when, when you, when you said, yeah, the Christianity is going to be there though, I'm going to show faith. Um, what do you think that does 
for the reader? What do you hope it does for the reader as you're provoking thought? Do you, uh, how, how do you want people to, especially if they're not Christians, um, practicing or just of a different faith altogether, what do you want that to mean to them? Does that make sense? That question makes sense? Yes, it does. Uh, I would hope, well, first of all, some people are going to get to that point in the book and just turn it down and not come back to it. And I understand that. I hope other people will look at it and go, I did not know that about the military mm. and continue to read. Mm. Uh, and then the, when they also read about Admiral uh, Halsey Burke, uh, then it hits them again. That Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't expect this to be uh saving people, quote unquote. Uh, but I just wanted them to know that faith is important in the military and and it can color what people do. What do you think the mil- the military as as you've known it has to offer the civilian world as far as insight, as far as a sanity check, as far as lessons learned um, to be better civic members? What do you think the military offers the public? Uh, or I should say military comes, service offers the public, not the military per se, but okay. what we think having been in the military, what perspective does one have that's worth sharing? Many people come into the military when they're 18, 19, 20. They really don't know what they want to do. Sometimes they're not too mature. Uh, it can grab them by the stack and swivel and wake them up and put a little discipline into them. Um, it can give them some focus. If nothing else, they can save money for a post-military college career. Or I think now they're even talking about a post-military technical career, which is good. Uh, It can grow them up. Uh, Those who want to stay, which is great, uh, they get more and more uh, learned in their particular field, which when they do retire, they're an asset. Not only from the technical field that they've learned, but they've learned discipline. They learned how to get up and come to work on time. They've learned to work hard. They've learned that they work for bosses and people work for them, but they've also learned, hopefully, when they disagree with something, they can raise their hand and say so. Um, The units, in my experience, that do the best are the ones that have open communication. Doesn't mean there's no chain of command. There's always a chain of command. Uh, but like I was a company commander, I was talking to some of my privates. I told them, I said, you know, my brain ossified long ago. All the good ideas that come out of, out of this unit come from you privates heads because they're the ones turning the wrenches. They're the one uh, doing the work and they come up with some pretty good ideas if you just listen to them. Do you feel like that's missing in the civilian world? Do you feel like open communication is missing, discipline, learning good habits? I've had um, about 10 years in county government in Florida with two different counties and about three years in the private sector with engineering and construction firms. And I've seen a mixed bag. And it sort of depends on the supervisor. Uh, if the supervisor is willing to listen, the people will share. If the supervisor doesn't want to listen, I've seen my share of those. It's it's not good. So it's a mixed bag. Who do you want to read the book? I think anyone who has an interest in our Constitution, good or bad, I think would enjoy the book. 
And some of them would say, oh, this guy's an idiot, but they'll enjoy the book. And other guys will say, oh, yeah, I've thought about this, but enjoy the book. Uh, anybody who wants to learn a little more about the military, uh, anybody who wants to read about some of the political processes that happen in Washington, D.C., again, this is from my perspective. Could I have misstated, understated, wrongstated some of the political processes? I sure could have. I, I hope I didn't, but I could have. But from an outsider's view, they're getting what I see of our political processes at the highest level. And some of what I see doesn't matter to the party. Some of what I see is, is not too cool. What was it like writing some of the dialogue? I mean, you're taking dialogue from drug dealers. You're taking dialogue from not just inside the Beltway, inside the West Wing. Uh, you're taking uh, that that's pretty rarefied air to capture with any sort of fidelity, like what those conversations are like. How, was that a challenge for you or were those voices were, were they already in your head and you were like, oh, I know how they'd say this? Well, that's a fair question. Um, remember, this is a book of fiction. I made up the storyline. <laughs> I made up the storyline and the characters. Uh, I, I've personally never been in the White House. Uh, I have been in the Pentagon several times. Uh, but I put in the dialogue that I thought would highlight constitutional issues and also highlight some of the problems we have at senior levels in all administrations from my outside perspective. So I don't have any key listening device that tells me what actually goes on in the West Wing. I'm just from my outside perspective in my fictional hat, writing what I think uh, might go on. Writing commercial fiction is to me, a tr when it's done well, I guess anybody can do it badly, but when it's done well, it's a triumph of architecture because there's so many pieces that have to slot together in a way that makes the reader want to keep turning the page. How much work did you put into structuring the book? Quite a bit. When I sort of had the storyline in my mind of how I wanted to go from point A to point B, I would put it down on paper, put it down uh, chronologically uh, in an outline, bulletized format of this will happen, this will happen. Oh, these three things can happen at the same time. And I sort of flowed it out, did a basic flow diagram of how I wanted this to come to fruition. Uh, during the writing, one of my biggest concerns was I've got too many rabbit trails. Uh, I can't bring them all together. Um, hopefully, I successfully brought the main ones together. But that was a concern of mine. I've raised too many rabbit trails uh, to effectively address. So we'll see. How did you keep track of all of them? Did you just stay with that master flow chart or did you end up doing note cards? Did you break things apart into you know, do you have some something written on a cork board? And you just got outline after outline after outline next to each other. Like mechanically, what was the mechanics of putting all this together? Well, I did the flow chart first with the master outline and the timings, and then I did a more detailed outline, and then and then started. Uh, did I make some changes down the line on the outline? Yes, I did. And then I had to cut and paste and move things around. Uh, it was. Interesting, keeping that all together and keeping a timeline together. 
that followed the flow of, of the diagram. What was your battle rhythm like writing it? Was it something that you would work on periodically? Was it something where every day you had to be nose to the grindstone? Uh, just How do you write? When I first started, uh, it was every day I would go to a local library in a real quiet place with my laptop and do as much as I could. Um, and then it waxed and waned. Uh, the, in the rewrite, uh, I would have hot periods where I did quite a bit. But then you send it off for a review by the editors. You sort of get a chance to let your brain uh, cool down. And so it, it's up and down, hot periods, cool periods. Um, that's probably how it was. What kind of feedback were you getting from the editors? What did they like? What didn't they like? What kind of things did you tighten your shock group around? Uh, the editors, they're fantastic. Nancy, she was a great editor. She would tell me, oh, you have too many run-on sentences. These are too long. Oh, you use this phrase 47 times. Maybe you can find. And I looked at it, and you know, they were absolutely correct. And I'm going, oh, I wouldn't read this. And so uh, they were great. Um, they had some thoughts on maybe the content should include this, and, uh, consider who your audience will be. Uh, and then they did the normal editing of, okay, we got typo here, misspelled word here, but they were, they were key players in this book. Did they affect the structure at all? Uh, not the overall structure of the book, but the structure of how I said some things and and raised a couple issues. Uh, and so I on a on a not on a macro degree, but on a micro degree, they did expect the structure in a positive way. In yeah. a positive way. Were there storylines or characters or threads that you just had to completely drop because you're like it's just too many balls in the air? Uh, there were certainly some things during this rewrite that I thought about adding. I, I, I added a few specific little entities here and there, but other things I just said to myself, you know, I, I can't go there. It's, it's getting too long. It's, it's, it's a complicated plot as it is. And I didn't want to make it more complicated. How much, <laughs> How much more is there to say? I imagine that this is just the start of a lot more potential books that could come after it, because I'm sure these aren't the only things you have to say or that you'd like to uh, share with an audience. Um, is that right? I have an outline for a sequel uh, using many of the same uh, personalities in it, um, but it, it's pretty basic at the moment. I've done some research on it. Do you think it would take eight years to get it out? Or do you think you now have a, a modus operandi? You can work quicker. I can, probably quicker than eight years. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it still takes a while. And the process uh, with this publisher and the editing and getting everything right, it, it's it's time consuming, but it's okay. They They have made it so much better than it was. That's great. And this is an improvement in the, do you see most of those improvements in this revised version or were they there even from the previous version? Uh, in the revised version, uh, uh, it's an improved book cover and an improved title, improved editing, 
uh, tightened up the storyline. They were just fantastic to work with. Let's talk about the business a little bit. Um, when the book first came out, the first version of it, um, you had a different publisher. Mm-hmm. What was the process like in getting that publisher? Was it a process you were happy with? Um, was it easy? Was it too easy? Um, or just what was the process of finally getting something going with a publisher? Uh, just getting a publisher is not easy. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time trying to find a publisher. Uh, and I started the one on the West Coast and that wasn't working. And then I got one out of Pennsylvania. They, they were a good publisher. Don't get me wrong. And they got the book published. Um, I think the marketing effort, probably especially on my end, wasn't there. Uh, the new publisher, he's out of the Atlanta area, uh, is just fantastic. Uh, really explained to me what marketing's all about. Uh, but the, their editors on the book, like I said, were just fantastic. So it's been a learning process every step of the way. Sure. Uh, I'm a slow learner sometimes, but starting to catch on, I hope. What did you find? I, feel, I have a feeling people would be interested in what you would, what tips you would have about finding the right publisher. For you and your experience, what were red flags? What were comforting signs that you'd made a right choice? What were things that people should or should not, or should be on the lookout for? Well, in, in my case, uh, my classmate down in New Mexico, he's written uh, several books, similar genre. And he said, use this guy, give him a call, which I did. And that was paydirt. And um, if someone asked me, in fact, I've already suggested a friend of mine who's writing a book to give that guy a call because easy to work with. Uh, they know what they're talking about. They know how the overall process works, not just editing a book. Uh, so it's finding the right publisher. I, there's actually groups of publishers out there, the Independent Publishing Group of America, something like that. Uh, they're out there, but take time to find the right publisher. Is there anything you don't want from a publisher that you look at now and you're like, if you hadn't found the publisher you're with now, and you were still shopping, any red flags that you would go, oh, yeah, run away from this person? Uh, I guess I'm not smart enough to know that yet, other than um, my first iteration, the marketing piece wasn't what it should have been. Again, main, that was probably mainly on my shoulders. Uh, this publisher, he knows it all. Um, I don't, I can't throw down a red flag on specifics to stay away from. I can throw down green flags and say, <laughs> run toward this, run yeah. toward this. Yeah. Um, have you given yourself a timeline for the next book? I know we said it won't be eight years, but I mean, in the back of your mind, is there kind of a checkered flag of like, yeah, I, I know when I know how quickly I want to try to turn this out. Uh, um, I have not uh, given myself a timeline. Um, I have the idea, I have an outline, I have the concept, um, but no, I haven't given myself a timeline. Okay. Um, do you do you think that this is the horse you can ride for multiple ensuing sequels, or do you think there's that you might completely pivot and there might be 
completely different characters and storylines and worlds that you're um, investigating that would better suit some of the stuff? Or do you think this is it? Um, I think this is probably uh, the horse I would ride into to the sequel. This is your Jack um, Ryan. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that makes a, a ton of sense. Um, are you on Instagram? I'm sorry? Are you on Instagram? I am. You are? Okay. But I, I haven't connected that yet. Where are you, Scott? Tell everybody how they need to follow you, where they need to uh, get, oh. your, get your books and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Oh, and we I also think. and we also got to make the announcement about the book because now it's August eighth, right? August eighth, it'll be available on Amazon, the Kindle version, and you can actually it'll be in paperback too. But you can actually pre-order the book now, the Kindle version. Okay, my Instagram account is and it's all one word, lowercase, Scott B Cottrell, no spaces, S C O T T B. C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L. My Facebook author page is Colonel, that's capital C-O-L, period, capital R, space, Scott, with a capital S, space, capital B, space, Cottrell, capital C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L, space, author. Very cool. uh, Look at this. This This is the new and improved marketing, right? (laughs) facebook the instagram all of it you know i'm learning i'm learning i'm a slow learner but i am learning (laughs) well and and also what's the website because the website's beautifully done by the way oh yeah i'm sorry well it's www.scottcottrell.com and scott cottrell is one word in lowercase it's a beautiful site yeah and i hate to ask such a crass question but i'll ask it anyway you do get more money if people buy it directly through the website than if they just go to Amazon, right? Is that, or, or what, what, what's the most advantageous for you? The, the, uh, the website should be telling them to go to Amazon or go to Barnes and Noble or go to it's, it's going to more than Amazon on eight August, but it's going to Amazon on eight August. It's going out there and it it's telling them, go look at it. Uh, I don't care where they purchase it. I don't okay. care if they buy a, a eat Kindle book or if they buy a paperback. Uh, I would hope if they're interested, they'd get a copy and read it. And they can always go on the website and send me a note. Uh, there's a place for that. And I will endeavor to answer everyone. That's very cool. Scott, this was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking. It was a pleasure reading it. And thanks for, for uh, you, you. I spent most of yesterday going through the book. <laughs> uh, what what a what a ride! What a roller coaster! And really, I I mean, as I said up front, I I find books like this to be, man, it is a it's a brainful because it's you got to marry credible characters, incredible dialogue with all this fact, and and in your case, all this history, and to have done that is uh, that's that's a gargantuan task. So congratulations, and I'm really excited for you, and excited to see where this goes. Okay, Chris, and I appreciate you taking the time this morning, and uh, and thank you very much. That was Scott Cottrell's profile in Havoc. So a couple of pieces of housekeeping I should probably mention. Not even housekeeping. It's a kind of level setting, I guess. Um, not to dime them out, 
But, you know, up front, Scott was like, hey, let's tread a little bit carefully around my military career, which I get. He had worked at so many um, strategic levels um, doing very cool, sensitive things uh, that made total sense. I say that only to say I did pull my punches when it came to really granularly walking through his career, the choices he made and all that. Um, hopefully it didn't bother you guys. Um, I certainly wanted to ask about pivotal moments in his career and certainly emotionally and career wise and why he thought the way he did when he did what I really appreciate. And I've talked about this before on the show, I think, but I think it's worth mentioning again. It's an endless source of irritation to me when successful people do not preach what they practice. And it is very common. I think we live in an age where it is an offense to be successful. There is a stigma that goes with success, whether it's financial success, personal success, personal accomplishment, and you can get a whole discussion on social media and blah, 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 inequality, blah, 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 blah. But there's such a stigma about it that I think when people do reach, um, it reminds me of a just to digress for a second, if anybody remembers the movie Broadcast News in the 80s, it's a great scene with William Hurt and Albert Brooks, where Albert Brooks is this kind of grizzled veteran journalist, and William Hurt is this stunningly good-looking network anchor whose life you know, just gets all these women, gets great jobs, gets great paying gigs. And William Hurt at one point says to Albert Brooks, he says, what do you do when your life is so much more than you ever dreamed? And Albert Brooks looks at him and goes, you keep it to yourself. <laughs> Sorry, I'm cracking myself up. I love that line. Uh, that's James L. Brooks that wrote that line, who's, you know, obviously went on to do The Simpsons and a million other great movies. Uh, but uh, what a great line. Anyway, I say that because a lot of people do that. They reach a level of success and they go, I'm just keeping how I got here to myself because it will piss people off or people won't understand it. And I just don't feel like dealing with the bullshit and the mishigas that comes with it. And I find that irritating, especially when people are casting about for ways to succeed and people that do succeed are reticent to share those methods. And in Scott's case, and I'm the one saying he's successful, by the way. I mean, Scott is enough of a gentleman. I don't, he may or may not see himself this way, but objectively, as an impartial third party, I look at Scott as someone that's had an incredibly successful life and is doing incredibly um, noble, selfless work. Um, and what I love is that Scott was unabashed about preaching what he practices. Going, yeah, this is what I believe, and so this is what my characters are going to believe. And I'm going to put some Christianity in there, and I'm going to talk. You know, he talks from the position of where his head's at. And if Scott was the kind of dude that was sitting on a couch smoking dope and bumming it and sleeping with different women every night and eating microwave meals out of a, you know, from Stouffer's or something. No knock on Stouffer's. I love a good Stouffer's TV dinner. But um, nonetheless, if he was doing that, he odds are, A, he would be more than happy to tell us about all his tips and tricks for success to get to those dizzying heights that he's at. And B, we would all nod and not want to pass judgment on the fact that he's broke and smoking dope and eating Stouffer's. 
the fact that Scott has had, in fact, a 29-year very successful Army career, has gone on to have success in local government, uh, contracting, engineering, and now is the author of a very successful book, Leveraging His Experience. Um, that's the kind of person we want to shut up about what got him here. And I'm not saying we do want him to shut up. I'm just saying I often would see that. That, to me, is the normal path of things where people want to keep their their uh, personal mindset and their personal paths to victory quiet. And I love that Scott, you know, hardly bragging or hardly, you know, clobbering you on the head with it, but just unabashed. That's the best word I can come up with for it. Unabashed, nonplussed, matter-of-factly, just, hey, this is what I think. And that's the diversity of thought that I think the veteran community has always had as a strength. Um, and, and that's truly uniquely veteran art. That's the role of veteran art in so many ways, is to capture that special sauce that made a veteran, not just a veteran, but made him a successful veteran. It's really important that the veterans art further that and provide a pathway to show how do people leverage their military experience in a way that's not just positive for themselves, but also um, unpacks their military experience in a way that's helpful to society, in a way society could understand and appreciate, if they're willing, if they're tolerant. And, um, and I love that Scott did that. That, to me, is incredibly noble and selfless, and even, sadly, in this day and age, a little bit fearless. So I deeply appreciate that. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned this on the Savage Wonder podcast because we piggybacked this episode with them. You know, if I were to lay out the bullet points of Scott's career, you know, retired full bird colonel, 29 years in the Army, um, you know, published author, Christian, lay out those bullet points. You know, happily married, kids, grandkids, all that. Obviously, there are people that would have impressions, good, bad, or ugly, about somebody with those bullet points. And it's one of the thoughts that kind of keeps recurring to me since I talked with Scott was what an absolute fucking gentleman he was. Not bragging, not full of himself, humble, but confident and articulate and with a quiet concern and selflessness, and looking for the best way to make some sort of imprint, pass along his experiential wisdom in some way, shape, and form. I mean, what's more selfless than that? You know, he talked about having joined the military out of a sense of service, and um, this is certainly a continuation of that, and rather than simply editorializing, to try to take go the extra step to find a, a, a fictional path to deliver what he thinks is important in a more palatable way. I think that's important. And, um, and I love how he defies the stereotypes that so many, and again, I live in the Northeast, so take my impressions with a grain of salt. Again, these are not my biases necessarily, but I'm very familiar with these biases. Um, but the, what, what would be the typical... Uh, biases associated with people with those sorts of bullet points on their resume. Um, I think 
Scott is a exemplary rebuttal to that. Okay. I think I've said enough on all this. But those were some of my thoughts in the wake of that interview. Um, okay. I started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation, which you should check out at secondmissionfoundation.org. I'd now like to thank this episode's other sponsor, my own, my very own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors and their immediate family members to create compelling live theater and events. Professionally done. We're not for hobbyists. We are not a therapeutic organization. We are not here to help veterans. We are veterans that are here to help audiences. Think about that for a second, which I humbly submit might even be the best form of therapy. Because there's nothing more therapeutic than seeing people willing to plunk down their hard-earned money to watch your art, see your show, see your performance. Um, Not because they're trying to be good patriots, just because they want to be entertained in a way that only you can provide. And that's what we do at Veterans Repertory Theater. To learn everything you should know about Veterans Repertory Theater, please go to vetrep.org. V-E-T-R-E-P.org. Vetrep.org. Vetrep.org. While you're there, well, the best thing you, should, you could probably do is scroll partway down the page and subscribe for free to our mailing list, which also doubles as the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. So by subscribing to the blog... You will get in your email inbox every day a short snippet of veteran poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, and then we follow it with a slew of shameless plugs uh, because we do have so much going on, plays in production, readings that are going on, uh, podcasts, <laughs> you know, all the rest of it. Uh, so a whole lot of stuff that you should know about, um, and that's the best way for us to keep you updated. Okay, I don't think I have anything else to say about that. So, vetrep.org for all of your vetrep-related questions, comments, and snide remarks. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Scott Cottrell. And on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. (laughs) 